in the words of the great Anderson Silva, I back, I back. Welcome everybody back to Keyboard Kimura here on the Substack and the YouTube. I am E. Spencer Kite. I am pumped to be here. It is great to be back doing what I love, talking about these fights, bringing you daily UFC content after a two-week break and a six-month hiatus from here. And let me start there by saying thank you to Graham McDonald, Sean Sheehan, Harry Powell, Ian O'Neill, Andy Stevenson, Sean Denny, and everybody else over at Severe MMA. I had an absolute blast being there for six months, growing as a content creator, working with them, getting to do some different stuff, create some different things that I am going to bring with me back to this platform. I still have nothing but love for those guys. It was just time for us to go our separate ways for me to take a little bit of a break, enjoy a couple of weeks off with my wife who was on vacation to just decompress. I've been doing this for 13, 14 years now, and there haven't been a lot of two week breaks. There haven't been a lot of even one week breaks. And so I needed some time to just kick back, to relax, to not put out content, to recharge the batteries and to go my separate ways from those guys. As I said, still nothing but love. Sean and I will still do the state of the UFC address. And I'm sure you will see Sean and Harry and Ian and a bunch of other people up on this platform as we get moving forward, as we get reestablished. But for right now, it's me flying solo, doing the things that I do best. That includes this video right here. One question for every fight, UFC 288 this Saturday, May 6th, Newark, New Jersey from the Prudential Center, from The Rock, headlined by a bantamweight title fight between Aljamain Sterling and returning former two-division champion Henry Cejudo. And my question here is where is Cejudo at athletically and competitively? We've seen the video, or or most people, I'm sure, that are watching this, that are listening to this, have seen the video now of the two of them greeting each other, interacting with each other at the start of fight week in New Jersey, and Cejudo saying the right things. We've seen all the videos of the prep work of the camp and him saying, look, I'm ready. I'm, I'm focused. I'm good to go. I'm, I'm locked in. But the thing that's interesting to me and the thing that is hung over this fight and remains the curiosity about this fight for me from the jump when it was announced all the way through till they get in the octagon on Saturday night is where is this dude at athletically? Because he's 36 years old now and it's been a minute. It's been three years. It will be three years less a day when he steps into the cage. May 7th was the date that he beat Dominic Cruz. May 6th, he is taking on Aljamain Sterling. And for as good as Henry Cejudo was in those last few fights before he left, three years off in your mid thirties is really an interesting space to sort of just ramp it back up against the absolute best in the world right now. And look, you can have criticisms and questions about Aljamain Sterling. I get it. He is probably the most doubted champion in the UFC right now. And that comes from sort of who he's beaten, how he's beaten them, things of that nature, but make no mistake about it. Aljamain Sterling is the real deal. He is a very serious threat, especially if he gets you on the ground and gets your back. And Henry Cejudo has got three years of rust to shake off. We know he's been in the gym working with other athletes, doing the coaching thing, building the IQ, seeing things from a different side. But that's still different than being in there live with a guy like Sterling. And I am fascinated to see how this plays out when they get in there on Saturday. Because style for style, 
this is really interesting, right? It feels like Aljamain Sterling needs to go in there and grapple. That's what he do, does best. Henry Cejudo felt like a guy that was coming into his own on the feet, really adapting his style to be more dangerous and more effective standing than he was necessarily wrestling because he hasn't really been a big wrestler in his MMA career, despite obviously the Olympic accolades and the background originating there. This is so fascinating to me. I'm so just counting down the minutes and hours until these two get in there and we can see them actually compete and we can see how this plays out. Because if Henry Cejudo is the guy that he was when he left, where we had seen the championship medal, where we had seen the tenacity, the ability to to adjust on the fly, as, as we saw in the Marlon Marais fight and as we saw in the fight against Dominic Cruz, And all of that comes back and the athleticism and the focus and the drive and the speed and the quickness, all of that comes back as is. This guy can grab the belt right back and start making all of those cringy statements again. And all of those claims about being the greatest of all time, the greatest combat sport athlete of all time and chasing down next things. But if he's not, if he's even a half step behind that guy, this is a real dangerous fight because Aljamain Sterling is a much bigger man He is physically strong. He is powerful. He is dangerous on the ground. And this could get real fun. And I cannot wait. Co-main event, Bilal Muhammad and Gilbert Burns. My question here is, can Muhammad get the big win that he's been missing? And listen, I say that fully appreciating what Bilal has done to this point. I spoke to him for UFC.com ahead of this fight. We talked about the run. He and I have been talking about this progression since ahead of his fight with Diego Lima, which really felt like the kickoff to where he's at right now. He comes into this on a four-fight winning streak, unbeaten in his last nine, 12 wins in his last 13 fights. And yet, understandably, for a lot of people, it feels like he doesn't have that one signature win that cements him as a contender. I would argue that stopping Sean Brady last year in Abu Dhabi at UFC 280 was enough to to seal the deal. A fourth consecutive victory built on top of wins over Stephen Wonderboy, Thompson, Vicente Luque, and then Sean Brady. For me, we're good. That's plenty. Away you go. You earn the championship opportunity because it's been nine straight without a loss. But I also understand the people that say, well, he hasn't beaten a top five guy yet and he needs to get one more. This is the opportunity. I will give full marks to Bilal for constantly campaigning for that next shot, for that next tough assignment. He isn't a guy that has been sitting back and saying, no, I'm just going to wait my turn. As soon as it's clear that what he had done wasn't enough to get him an opportunity, he went on the offensive. He tried to find those fights. He was calling out for a fight against Hamzat Chumayev. He was looking for a fight with Colby Covington for the longest time ahead of this. And then when Colby was granted, given, gifted, whatever word you want to use, the next championship fight against Leon Edwards, Bilal instantly shifted and was looking for the next fight he needed to get. And it is this one. Gilbert Burns gets full marks as well for making a quick turnaround, jumping in here a month after defeating Jorge Masvidal, looking to get right back into the mix to solidify his place at the top of this division. And this, to me, the fact that it's five rounds, the fact that they've had just a couple of weeks to sort of get ready for one another, 
makes this such an interesting fight because Bilal Muhammad's pace is the big thing that really gets people. And when I spoke to him, I asked him about that feeling of, of seeing people and watching people break in front of him because everybody's ready to go for that first five minutes, right? Sean Brady came out of the gate and he was ready to go, but it was clear after five minutes that he just wasn't going to be able to keep up with Bilal, who is just in your face, relentless juggernaut. Gilbert Burns is a guy that can go with you and can do that. We saw that against Hamzat Chemaev, right? 15 minutes hard back and forth. But there's another 10 minutes after that. And I know Bilal Muhammad's gas tank is there. And so I'm really curious to see if after all of this road, after all of this waiting and consistently going out and getting the next win that he needed, he can go out and get this one that puts him as the number one contender after Saturday. Next up, Jessica Andrade and Jan Zhaonan. My question is, what Jessica Andrade do we see here? Because you'll remember, last appearance, she came in on short notice against Aaron Blanchfield in a, in a main event, coming off a great performance against Lauren Murphy early this year in Brazil at, at UFC 283. And she just didn't have it. And Aaron Blanchfield looked great and came out and countered really well and got that second round submission. I have always believed, I have always felt that Jessica Andrade is best suited for the 115 pound weight class where this fight takes place for the straw weight division. Physically, she just doesn't have the size to match the Aaron Blanchfields of the world, who is the next generation of the flyweight division, right? Andrade has the ability and the skill and the tenacity and the power and all of those things to go out and look great against the Lauren Murphys of the world and against many fighters, frankly, in the flyweight division. But she gets the most benefits for what she brings to the table by competing at 115. Now, the interesting thing to me, this will be her third fight this year. It'll be her fourth fight in the last 13 months. And it's a second time back down to 115. And, and the reason I ask what Andrade do we see here is because bouncing through divisions and coming off that loss is a really interesting position for a veteran fighter who has been to the top of the mountain and who seems to me to not really be sure where she wants to settle. If this is Jessica Andrade just sort of adopting a Cowboy Cerrone approach of I'll bounce between divisions, I'll fight whoever they want, and eventually maybe I win enough fights that I get back into a championship mix or I have to be selective. But for now, let me just go out there and compete and put some money in the bank. Cool, I'm with it. But Yan Zhaonan is somebody who's in that contender mix, right? Coming off a okay majority decision win over Mackenzie Dern, where she dominated the striking portions, but struggled in the grappling. It's a fight that, historically speaking, Jessica Andrade should win. You would you would pick her. She's obviously the favorite. I will most likely pick her come Friday when I do the punch drunk predictions. She will probably feature in some betting selections because I'm bringing back So You Want to Make a Bet as well. But I just want to see it. This is a, a really interesting crossroads point or or flex point for Jessica Andrade because I, I still believe she's capable of being the champion here. She has a bit of a history, obviously, with Zhang Wei Li having lost the belt to her in, in Zhang Wei Li's first run as UFC champion. 
And so I'm really curious to see if we get sort of a, a return to the ferocious marauding Jessica Andrade, or if some of that is maybe gone after all these years of competing, all of these years fighting at this high level across three different weight classes, are we in a different stage of things? And I think we're going to get a little bit of an inkling, a little bit of an answer on Saturday. Move to the featherweight division. Mavsar Ivloyev and Diego Lopez, who steps in on short notice for Bryce Mitchell. My question is, will Evloyev deliver the statement win that he needs? I loved this fight when it was Bryce Mitchell. I loved it. It was perfect. They were supposed to fight last year in November. Evloyev had a knee injury, had to withdraw. Mitchell goes on, fights Ilya Tapuria, gets battered. And then Mavsar Evloyev jumps in for Jonathan Pierce when he got injured, what was supposed to be a fight between he and Mitchell here at UFC 288. Now this week, during fight week, Mitchell is forced to withdraw. Diego Lopez, who trains with Alexa Grosso and that crew, steps in, former contender series guy, kind of hit and miss lately on the regional circuit, had a couple good wins, but then a couple losses and then a couple good wins again. It feels like a space to me for Ivloyev to go out and have the kind of performance that serves as a reminder that he is right there with the Tapuria's of the world with the Arnold Allens of the world last time out, he got a very good win over Danny gay in a fight that I think for me has continued to age extremely well at the time. I knew it was a great win, but I think for a lot of other people, it's the kind of victory that's going to continue to age well. And especially this weekend when we see Vloyev get back out there and remind people, get that opportunity to be back in the cage and remind people of what he's capable of. You don't go out there and dominate Dan Ige the way that he did. 30-27s across the board. I believe he got a 30-26 from one judge for a 10-8 in the third round. That's the kind of performance. That's the kind of victory that if you understand how good Dan Ige is, you sit up and take notice of Ivloyev. And now it's been nearly a year since that fight, and that costs him, right? He's someone that hasn't necessarily been able to maintain that momentum and keep stepping into the cage every six months at a minimum to build and build and build and keep going forward. If he had, I would argue that he would be further ahead in the division than he is currently stationed at number 10. This weekend feels like a chance, especially now. It did even in the Mitchell fight, but especially now against a short notice replacement in Diego Lopez for Ivloyev to come out and just dominate. It doesn't have to be a stoppage. It doesn't have to be a finish. That would obviously be great. And I'm sure it's what he's gunning for, but even to go out and just thoroughly outclass Diego Lopez, there will certainly be people that want to say, yeah, but it's short note. You go out there off a year off, get a change of opponent like this on three days notice and put forth a dominant effort to continue being undefeated, to move to seven and zero in the UFC 17 and zero overall. That's the real deal. And I think this is the weekend where a lot of people that have been unsure or not sold suddenly realize that Mavsari Vloyev is a problem in this division. Featherweights also kick off the main card. Crone Gracie returning against Charles Jordan. And my question is, can Jordan get things moving in the right direction again? 
The French Canadian is, is a bundle of talent and excitement and personality and energy and all kinds of good things, but he hasn't been able to have the results as of late. He's struggled against guys that have been a little bigger than him. The Shane Burgos fight. He struggled to just sort of build that consistency that gets him moving forward in the right direction. He's tried. He's tried to get some big opportunities. Uh, volunteered at the start of last year to jump in real quick, coming off that win over Andre Ewell with the Spartan kick to jump in against Tapuria and Tapuria missed weight or wasn't going to be able to make weight. And that fight got scrapped last minute. He had the good win over Lando Venata, but then it just hasn't been there. The consistency of results haven't been there yet. Thoroughly entertaining fighter, guy that everyone, myself included, is always looking forward to see compete. And I think this is a interesting matchup because Gracie, obviously phenomenal on the ground, showed in his last fight several years ago now against Cub Swanson that he's willing and somewhat capable to stand and throw with guys, both of which things are are elements where Jordan can have success, but also will have to prove himself, right? This isn't a fight where you go out and try to grapple with Chrome Gracie, but if you can show some of that defensive ability, you can show some of those defensive skills to get away, to hand fight, to break free and dictate the terms of engagement here. This is an opportunity on a big card against a name guy, even though he hasn't fought in three years, to come back and get a win and get things moving in the right direction. Gain some momentum as you kick off your 2023 campaign and start moving forward. Jordan still has, to me, all the pieces there, all the elements there to be a perennial top 15 guy and a bundle of excitement and entertainment in this division. He just has to put it together and we'll see if that can start this weekend. Next up, lightweights, Drew Dober versus Matt Frivola. And my question is, is Drew Dober the ultimate litmus test guy? Like we talk all the time. I talk all the time about these athletes who aren't quite all the way into being contenders, but are better than the vast majority of the people in their respective divisions. We use terms like gatekeepers. We use terms like litmus tests, as I, as I did, veteran exams, stuff of that nature. And Drew Dober, to me, is the platonic ideal of that. He's a guy that is an excellent kickboxer. He's a pretty good grappler, a very good grappler in for, for someone where grappling wasn't his base, right? He came up in kickboxing, but he has done well to adapt himself, use his athleticism, use his frame, understand his body to become a good defensive wrestler and a good offensive grappler when he needs to be. We've seen over these last three fights, and he comes in on a three-fight winning streak, all finishes, first, second, third round, spreading it all out, doing all kinds of different things that he is a, a tough, tough out when you get in there. And look, Matt Frivola, two straight wins, two straight first round finishes, fighting across the bridge from home. He's a New York guy fighting in Jersey. There's going to be a lot of steamroll of fans in the building. This is the big test, right? Drew Dober is that guy for a lot of people. I was surprised by this matchup. I thought we would get somebody a little further up the rankings. I know Drew called out Jalen Turner and Jalen responded with a like, yeah, okay, I'm into that kind of response on Twitter, but that never came to be. But this is sort of, to me, it's a chance for Matt Favola to go forward. And it's a chance for Drew Dober to sort of remind everybody or like 
really put his stake in the ground of this is where I stand. I am that benchmark that you have to clear. If you want to get into the top 15, If you want to get there. You got to go through me. And every time he's in there, it's wildly entertaining. So I cannot wait. Shift to light heavy, heavyweight, excuse me, Kennedy and Zechiku against Devin Clark. My question is whether this is the start of a little run for Kennedy and Zechiku. So he comes into this fight on a two-fight winning streak, back-to-back stoppage wins. Devin Clark comes in off a, off a stoppage win, saying all the right things about it's a new chapter, new page, going to be a run. Not sure Devin Clark, 33 years old, probably is what he is at this point. The reason I'm willing to give Kennedy and Zachiku a little bit more grace, a little bit more rope in that regard, not only is it just that he's 30, but he's a fighter that showed up at Fortis MMA a bunch of years ago now, just no experience, right? Hadn't done anything. Wasn't a wrestler, wasn't a boxer, wasn't a kickboxer, wasn't even really an athlete, was just a big, tall kid whose mom wanted him to have something to do. And from there, Safe Saud and the team in Dallas has built Kennedy into a UFC light heavyweight who has had some success, but some struggles as well. And when I look at him, rather than look at the results and some of the guys he's lost to and some of those fights, and there's been some, some tough ones, right? There's been some setbacks where you think, well, you lose to that guy. You drop a split decision to Nick Negumarianu you're probably not going forward, but he's coming off a good win over Iwan Kutilaba last time out. He's 30 years old, as I said, and it feels to me like he is a guy that now has all that experience in the UFC, at the UFC level, under his footing, under his belt, to build from. We've seen it in the last couple fights. He's been more patient, but he's also been more authoritative. When he gets you hurt, there's a little bit more. It, it almost feels like there is more trust and belief in himself. It feels like Kennedy has finally started believing what everyone around him has believed this whole time, that he can be a threat in this division because he's great big. He's got huge power. He's got tremendous range, tremendous length. And if he starts using all of those things to the best of their abilities, to the best of his abilities... He can be a factor. This is a good test. Devin Clark is going to come out and look to put this man on the ground and grind him into into salt. Just grind him into the mat and pummel him and beat on him and wear on him and tire him out and exhaust him and break his spirit. This is a fight where Kennedy can come out and show that that's not going to happen. He's the guy that's going to dictate terms of engagement. He's the guy that's going to be pressing forward and using his range and using his power and hurting you with punches and elbows and kicks and all of the different weapons that he has at his disposal. Light heavyweight always has room for fighters to continue building and ascend. And the road is far less difficult to get into that top 15 and get into some name brand opportunities. And if Kennedy and Zechichiku goes out on Saturday and puts up a third straight finish, he's going to get one of those opportunities. Move back to welterweight chaos. Williams returns against Rolando Bedoya. And my question is, where does Williams fit at welterweight? So the rundown, 29 years old, 13 and three overall, four and two in the UFC. The wins are over Alex Morono, Abdul Razak Al-Hassan. Both of those were quick knockouts. Matthew Semmelsberger, unanimous decision, good fight. And Miguel Baeza, unanimous decision, good fight. The losses are to Michelle Pejea and to Randy Brown by split decision last time out in a very close competitive fight. 
Williams is to me, to my impression, to my assessment, a plus athlete, big power, but it feels like he hasn't really connected all the dots. He's got some of it down and he has some understanding of what he does well and how to deploy those things. But I think we saw in both the fights with, with Randy Brown and Michelle Pahey. And obviously I look at the losses as the, as the points for growth more so than the victories. There's just not quite that understanding of, I got to go. I got to throw more. I can't just be looking for that one power shot. I've got to be doing the whole touch, 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 then boom with the hammer. Harry and I would always talk about the Trevor Whitman thing of take 20% off and just go and just keep touching them and it'll come. And Chaos Williams is a perfect example of another fighter that just needs to hear that, that just needs to understand, that needs to take a little bit from fighters like Justin Gaethje, obviously the person that got those initial Trevor Whitman instructions. But also, I mean, everybody that loves the Diaz brothers, you can learn from the touch, 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 always throwing, always active that made them so great, right? It was never big power. It was just chip away, death by a thousand cuts. And if you're Chaos Williams, where you've got grand power and knockout power in your back pocket, the touch, touch, touch becomes even more dangerous. This feels like a fight with all due respect to the debuting Rolando Bedoya that Chaos Williams should win and should win handily if he's a guy we need to pay real attention to in this division. If he's somebody that's going to have some forward momentum, that's going to be able to build a little something for himself going forward at 170. This is a fight where he should go out and show that and starch this dude. I don't know that it's going to happen. He's coming off that loss. As I said, it's been about a year since he fought. So we'll see, but it wouldn't surprise me if we get a statement effort from chaos Williams here. Move back to strawweight. Marina Rodriguez returns against Verna Jandiroba. And my question here is, can Rodriguez work back into contention? I'm going to take a deep breath and settle myself here because this one frustrates me. Because Marina Rodriguez, to my opinion, is the poster child for why I hate title rematches and constantly asking more of athletes. So she gets off to a 2-0-2 start in the UFC. She loses a split decision to Carla Esparza that if it happened today, like if we just took that fight and stuck it on last week's fight card, she wins that fight based on how we're correctly interpreting and correctly using the scoring criteria because she did a bunch of damage from the bottom in that decisive third round against the two-time champ, Carla Esparza. She then goes out and wins four straight. She stops Amanda Hibas in Abu Dhabi. She beats Michelle Watterson in a main event fight. She beats Mackenzie Dern in a main event fight, which felt to me at the time, okay, it's enough. We've done enough to get to where we need to go. Carlos Barza was the champion. Let's get her in there. Run it back. Championship opportunity. Obviously, Carlos Barza fights Zhang Weili, loses the belt. And Marina Rodriguez gets stuck in with Yan Jonan. She gets that win. Split decision, but hey, it's a tough fight. We know how good Yan Jonan is. She's fighting further up the fight card this weekend, and I'll get to that in a second. She wins that split decision. Again, feels like, okay, put her in there with Zhang Weili. Zhang's won the belt. Let's get this going. Let's get this popping. Here's a perfect opportunity. This should be next. And she gets put in with Amanda Lemos. And she loses that fight. 
because Lamos hits her with some big power bombs and bounces her out of the title picture. So instead of fighting for the title, she gets stuck in with another dangerous contender, another fighter, and, and a fighter coming off a loss at that period, which felt extra frustrating for me. And those of you watching on YouTube can see the frustration in my face as I'm scrunching up my face and being aggressive and disappointed by proxy for Marina Rodriguez. And now Yan Zhaonan is ahead of her, not only on this fight card, but in the division as well. Because after losing to Marina Rodriguez, she went out and edged out Mackenzie Dern, which somehow felt like a bigger win than anything that Marina Rodriguez had done, even though she be beat her head to head. This is a dangerous fight because Verna Jandiroba is a very good grappler, but it is another fight that Marina Rodriguez should win. And I would love to see her come out and make a statement here. This is the kind of fight, unfortunately for her, she is somebody that is going to have to start winning fights and putting together some finishes and shouting for opportunities and calling people out by name and demanding fights. Because she has shown that if you sit back and you're kind of quiet and you don't speak up for what you want vehemently, you can get shuffled into the background. And that's what happened to her. And she lost her place in line. And I want to see if she can get back there with a couple good wins this year because she had earned it. She had done enough. She had merit, done enough to merit the opportunity. And I want to see if she can get back there because I really want there to be some fresh contenders in this division. I don't need it to just be Zhang Weili, Rose Nama Yunus, Jessica Andrade, the same fighters fighting each other over and over. Get me the Marina Rodriguez's. Get me Tatiana Suarez when she gets back down to 115 and moving forward. Get me Yan Jaonan if she gets a victory over Jessica Andrade. Get me Mackenzie Dern if she can finish putting it together. If Amanda Hebos wants to come back down to 115, cool. Get me her back in there. Let's get things moving. Let's get Marina Rodriguez an opportunity if she can get a victory this weekend. Move to the Fight Pass prelims. Braxton Smith debuts against Parker Porter at heavyweight. And my question is, can we please stop doing these? I'm not trying to be harsh. I'm not trying to be cruel or dismissive of these athletes. But here's the thing. Smith is 5-1. and one, Debuted all the way back in 2014. Lost to Chase Sherman. Took a whole bunch of years off. Came back last year and has won five straight. All in the first round none of them going more than two minutes and four seconds. I've watched the videos. It's not pretty. It is ugly regional heavyweight fighting where dudes are just throwing bombs. And if one lands, you go out because that's heavyweight. And Smith is a gigantic human being in terms of like size, physicality, power, all of those things. He is, he is massive, though being short and stocky and clearly has big power. Porter's 38. He's lost his last two in the first round. Stoppage loss to Justin Taffa. Stoppage loss to someone else I can't remember. Jelton Almeida. That's who it was. Which, I mean, listen. It's stuck in there with Jelton Almeida. I understand he's headlining in a week. But for me, it's hard to have a fight like this alongside the elite fights that are taking place ahead of it. To go from this fight into Marina Rodriguez and Verna Jandiroba is just such a discrepancy and it's sort of, it, it stands out. It's a glaring difference. This isn't me saying we can't have people that aren't contenders in the UFC 
were on the same fight card. But the difference, the disparity here between this fight, which isn't going to be pretty. There's no way that this is pretty. And listen, Braxton Smith may go out and get a highlight reel knockout, but the dude just throws bombs. He just wings shots. It will look probably even less appealing than the Muhammad Usman Justin Taffa fight, which looked ugly. And if it goes beyond two minutes and 30 seconds, which he hasn't done yet, it could get real ugly. This is regional circuit fight on the biggest stage of the sport. And while I, I certainly am always going to advocate for every athlete making as much money as possible, getting their opportunities, getting a chance to prove themselves. This one just feels like it doesn't belong. This is that Sesame street. One of these things is not like the others. I know that heavyweight is difficult to populate and it's hard to find people to fight in this division that can, can compete regularly, but there's gotta be different, different, more proven, more experienced, more polished fighters than this out there. Parker Porter can hang. He's got three wins in the UFC. Braxton Smith. I'm not sure about. And I just, to me, like I said, this one feels like it, like an outlier on this card. And I really wonder if we could stop just tagging heavyweight fights into some of these fight cards and find a better spot for them on the prelims of some of these fight night shows or somewhere else. Cause it just doesn't fit and it feels really weird. And I got a feeling it's going to be kind of a weird fight to end off the prelims before we get to television, before we get to the established names and the folks that are moving forward. All respect to them for stepping in there. As always, I throw that in there just to make sure nobody wants to come back and be like, well, you couldn't do it, dude. And how dare you disrespect? Nah, full love and respect for these men for stepping in there and competing and putting their health and safety on the line for our entertainment and their financial gain, hopefully to a certain degree. But it just, this to me is, is a fight that doesn't fit at this level yet. We move to middleweight, Phil Haas versus Ikram Aleskarov. My question is, what are we getting? with Alaskarov. So made quick work of Mario Souza on Dana White's contender series last fall. Once he got the fight to the ground, I watched it back earlier this week or late last week. And it was 18 seconds from the time he elevated him to the time the fight was stopped with that Kimura, beautiful setup, beautiful finish, excellent work. But he looked unsure and uncomfortable on the feet prior to that fighting a rangy guy and, and look, rangy guys like Sozar are difficult to deal with, but still he's a Samba world champion, but he's already 30. And so to me, he feels like one of these guys. And it seems like we get them all the time at middleweight that come in and we don't have a lot of time to mess around. We kind of got to find out right away. Is this somebody I need to pay attention to? Is this somebody that's got some upside that's going to move forward? Or is this just another name at middleweight? So I like the fact that he's jumping in with Phil Haas, who remains on the fighters I can't quit list for me because the athleticism is there, because we've seen the power, because we've seen the good. We've also, of course, seen the bad. And so who knows? But this feels like an, an immediate test to a certain degree that's going to tell us whether Aleskarov is a guy that can go forward quickly and can sort of jump into that fast lane and be elevated maybe maybe along the lines of Abbas Magomedov, who is, of course, much to the dismay of many people, fighting Sean Strickland in a main event later this summer. 
but that's what we got to do. There's, there's no reason for, it's crazy to me that, that people want to see sort of slow progressions with some of these older, more experienced fighters. Like Aleskarov is, is pretty good on paper. You look at who he's fought. He's beat some former UFC guys. His one loss is to Hamzat Chemaev back in Brave. So like, let's go. There's no reason to beat around the bush with this dude. There's no reason to sit and wait and see what happens. If he goes through Phil Hawes on Saturday, fast lane, let's go. Get him in there with somebody that matters and let's figure this out. And if he doesn't, that's fine too. Move to flyweight. Rafael Estevam against Jelgis Jumagulov. My question is where will Estevam slot in at flyweight? He's another contender series grad. Looked very good in that performance against Zhao Elias. Um, defended really well on the ground, really effective from top position, both in terms of keeping himself safe, landing offense and attacking himself. Comes from a great camp, trains with the Nova Uniao guys. Jumagulov is a very good test. And so we get an undefeated 26-year-old coming in against the good veteran test. And look, Jumagulov is one in five in the UFC, but you got to look beyond those numbers. You got to look beyond the actual record itself and look at not only who he fought, but even go back and watch some of those fights. Because the last two are split decision losses to Jeff Molina and Charles Johnson. When they announced that Jeff Molina won that fight, Jeff Molina was surprised that he won that fight. And against Charles Johnson, it's an absolute coin flip. It was a super close fight. Zumagulov did a lot of good things. Switch those around and he's suddenly three and two and nobody's questioning whether this guy's any good. He's clearly good. Clearly deserves to be here. The the record doesn't show it, but the performance is due. And so this is a very good test for Estevam out of the gate. Flyweight keeps getting deeper and I'm really curious to see where he's going to fit in to start his UFC tenure. Move back to middleweight. Joseph Holmes versus Claudio Hibero. The question is, which Dana White contender series middleweight drowns here? And listen, let me just preface this by saying, I'm not saying that the loser is done or needs to be cut or anything like that. But they're both facing a must win. Let's just be honest about this, right? This is, you don't want to lose two straight early in your career. Joseph Holmes has a win already. He earned a victory, but it's against Alan Amadovsky. And with all due respect to Amadovsky, who is 0-4 in the UFC, I'm not putting a lot of stock in that win. So he lost on short notice to Jamie Pickett. And then he came out last time and lost to Da Eun Jung, who's a good fighter, but again, somebody that's kind of ceiling has already been defined. Hibero got a 30-second victory on Contender Series last year, came out in his debut and didn't have a lot to offer Abdul Razak Al-Hassan, who grappled him against the fence and then came out and bludgeoned him as we expected Abdul Razak Al-Hassan to do in the first round. He is a guy that he and his team make a ton of noise coming out to the cage and throughout the fight. He's the hay guy. Ian and I talked about it and, and mimic it back when we were previewing his last fight. And it feels like right now for me, he's an all hat, no cattle guy, all the noise, all the hype, nothing behind. And so he gets matched up here against Joseph Holmes in a fight that, like I said, it's not necessarily loser leaves town, but it's, you don't want to be sitting if you're Holmes at one and three, and if you're Hibero, oh and two. So ideally, in theory, on paper, in my mind, we should get the absolute best out of these two dudes. 
This is where urgency comes in. This is where I have to be active and I have to go out and grab this thing. Now, that means maybe putting yourself in harm's way. That's got to be the choice here for each of these men. Because if you go out, even if you go out and win a very tepid decision, it doesn't help you all that much. I would argue, and, and most people would probably agree with me, that if you go out there and go out on your shield, as the cliche goes, you're going to get a little bit more leeway, a little bit more rope than if you go out there and fight passively. And you go out there and you don't really look to engage and you're really tentative. And so I wonder and I hope that these two middleweights come out, throw down, get after it. One of them makes a statement. Both of them show improvements from the last fight and we get something out of them because we haven't yet. Opening bout of the night in the bantamweight division, Daniel Santos versus Johnny Munoz Jr. My question is, what can Wiley Cat do as an encore? I was really impressed with Daniel Santos last time out against John Castaneda. He was hurt early. Castaneda was coming off a very good win and he weathered the storm, rallied to get a finish in the second round. Surprised me. I was all in on Castaneda in that fight. Got it completely wrong. Changed my opinion. Circled Santos as a can't wait to see him compete next time out. And here he is against Munoz Jr. He is 10 and two overall. He's 28 years old. He's part of the shoot the box Diego Lima team, which means he trains with guys like Charles Oliveira and Alan Naciamento. Munoz is two and two in the UFC. He's primarily a grappler. And this feels to me like a chance for Daniel Santos kicking off a big fight card, kicking off a pay-per-view event where a lot of people are really interested in seeing this fight card and sitting down it's pay-per-view. So the prelims start for me out here on the West coast at about 3 PM. I'm going to guess maybe even two 30. So it's right in that time where people are probably back and settled in from doing whatever they were doing the rest of the day. And you get a chance to make a statement early against a good fighter who has had some success in the UFC and see if you can build on that great performance last time out. That's it for the show. And I got to tell you, it feels amazing to be back. I am pumped to do this. I'm going to do this as best I can every week for every fight card, because as the guy that always talks about every fight mattering and wanting to know and introduce you and talk to you about every athlete on this roster, this is the best way for me to do that. One of these platforms that make it the best for me to do that. And so I try to be here every Wednesday with one question. I will be back tomorrow with 10 things because there are more than 10 things that I like. So I got to whittle down the list. Friday, we'll double it up. I don't know if I'm going to do, do two shorter videos, two shorter pieces, or combine them like Ian and I did back on the severe picks and plays into one, but we will go through my picks for this fight card and some betting ideas for this fight card. I will be writing up 10 things we learned for the Keyboard Kimura Substack. Go up and click the QR code in the top corner of this. That'll bring you right to the Substack where you can subscribe. It's $5 a month, 50 bucks for a year or free for all the stuff that isn't behind a paywall. I will be putting some of the written work, especially behind a paywall. There's got to be a reason for people to subscribe. There's got to be some give back to the fine folks that already do. I appreciate you all. Go check out my guys, the sponsors, One Bone. You see it up there in the corner at One, Bo One Bone Brand on Instagram and Twitter. This is them. You'll see a lot of it. They're my guys. It's a Montreal-based company. Great fits, big, tall, and all. Absolutely great for everybody. Go check them out. Shout outs to my guys, Sam and Adam. Be talking to them real soon, and you'll see more from them real soon. Follow me on Twitter, 
on Instagram, on here, on YouTube, on the Substack. It's so good to be back. It's good to be home. Thank you for sticking around with me. I hope you enjoyed this. We're going to keep cranking it out. It's the next wave. It's the next chapter of the Keyboard Kimura Substack, the Keyboard Kimura podcast, Keyboard Kimura dropping content. Happy to be home. I'll talk to you tomorrow.